La entrevista del episodio de hoy fue hecha en inglés para facilitar la conversación con Brian York, nuestro invitado. Como van a poder escuchar en este episodio, Brian nació en Colombia, pero fue adoptado por una familia americana y creció en Estados Unidos. Tiene una historia inspiradora y fascinante. Desde hace varios años, Brian ha sido un gran emprendedor. En el 2001 empezó su primera compañía y en el 2017 decidió volver a Colombia y ser parte de esta gran oleada de emprendedores que ha surgido en el país, con sus dos startups, Liftit y Cubo. Durante la conversación de hoy vamos a cubrir varios temas, incluyendo el ecosistema emprendedor en Latinoamérica, un poco de supply chain y también, por supuesto, cómo es ser un CEO de nueva generación. Historias como la de Brian nos ayudan a poner en contexto el ecosistema emprendedor en la región y realmente qué es lo que está pasando. Espero que escuchen hasta el final. Welcome to Tres Puntos. Today we have a very special episode that we're going to do in English. We have a great guest today, Brian York. Brian is a serial entrepreneur, and a very influential person in the startup ecosystem in Colombia. So Brian, welcome to Tres Puntos. Thanks for having me, Santiago. Thanks for the invites and uh, kind words and looking forward to jumping into it. Great. So we normally don't spend a lot of time in background, but you do have a fascinating background that I think is worth spending a few minutes. So maybe if you can give us a brief intro on yourself, your relationship to Colombia and how you got to got to this country, I guess, the second time. Sure. Sounds great. So my mother was homeless and she had me on the streets of Bogota and abandoned me into an orphanage. The orphanage is called Fana. So probably some listeners know Fana. It's a local orphanage that still exists in, in Bogota. And at two weeks old, I was adopted and I grew up here. I'm actually visiting family. I, I came back last week for Thanksgiving and I'm still here for a few more days. And so right down the street from where I am today, I grew up in the south of Boston. And yeah, I was the only brown kid in my town and uh, I was always different and I always wanted to know why I was different and adopted. And so that's what drove me back to eventually come back to Bogota where I ended up um, coming back in 2017 and haven't left since. Unfortunately, I haven't learned the language fluently, so I appreciate having this in English. But um, it's a real pleasure being there full time in Bogota. I'm now reconnected to my family. It took me about 18 months to find them through a private investigator. And so uh, my mother is living in Fusagazuga, my brother is in Medellin. And so reconnected with both of them, speak to my brother almost every week. And um, for me, it's a, a dream come true to be living in Bogota and also innovating. So as I got older, I started to get into startups. It's amazing to be back and to be able to continue to be able to do startups and hit the market at the exact right time. There's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur in Latin America, specifically in Colombia as well. So I couldn't be more happy the way things are going. Great. Thank you for the intro. Fascinating story. And of course, I think we could do an entire podcast on that story. There's a lot of questions, but since this is a business podcast, I'm going to shift. But thank you very much for sharing that. That's, that's amazing. Congratulations in every aspect of that story. So you were an entrepreneur in the U.S. before coming to Colombia, right? 
Yeah, I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. When I was 14, I started a landscaping business, which still exists here outside of Boston. And then, and then I did three startups, tech startups in San Francisco, one in Colombia when I first got there, uh, Lift It, and now I'm doing Kubo. So Kubo is my fifth venture-backed startup, though I've done many startups through my entire career. So maybe tell me a little bit about the difference or what was a little bit of the difference of being an entrepreneur in the U.S. versus being an entrepreneur in Colombia. Yeah, I mean, today, not a ton of difference. When I first started to be an entrepreneur in Bogota in 2017, which isn't that much time ago, you know, there was there was some more difference. It was, it was harder to fundraise. It was harder to get things off the ground. At the time, it was really just only rappy that people could point to for an example of like, uh, whether it's related to finance example of like, like funding or how to scale or how big companies could be. But now today, it just, there's a ton of amazing startups in Colombia and Latin America, and times are a lot easier uh, for sure. The tactics of being an entrepreneur today is very similar to when I was in San Francisco. Perhaps the differences that remain is San Francisco and the U.S., but specifically uh, San Francisco. There's a tight community of entrepreneurs where it's easier to get things off the ground and find support from people who have incredible backgrounds um, and other education backgrounds and other startup backgrounds. And the ecosystem is really strong. There's people are always like trying to give it forward without expecting anything in, in return. And I think Latin America in general kind of lacks that still. However, that is getting better. Um, but that just comes with the territory of the market being really young. And there's still not a ton of comps as it relates to mega successful startups in Colombia specifically. It still really is only rapid today. However, there's a lot of other well-funded and fast-growing companies. However, we really haven't had the material experience of employees of those companies exiting and starting other companies, though that is just starting to happen. So I believe that the differences which I just described with the ecosystem will catch up as the market in Latin America continues to thrive. Great. So maybe... You give us a brief intro on Lift It and Cool. So we set a little bit of context on the problems that you like to solve with your entrepreneurship. Yeah. So as I said, uh, Kubo is my fifth venture-backed startup. And every startup I've done, I've never had a moment of experience in that particular startup previously. Perhaps Kubo, I was well-positioned because... I had previous supply chain experience with Liftit. However, I had never done anything with warehousing, didn't know anything as it relates to fulfillment. There's a real estate angle with Kubo as well, which I don't have any real estate, like urban reconstruction experience previously as well. So my ones that I did in, in San Francisco, my first one was a social app for sports fans. Then my second and third businesses were enterprise software companies, completely different verticals. I always, and then with Lyft, it was truck deliveries, and now I'm doing urban warehousing, focusing on e-commerce fulfillment. In each opportunity, I try to find an opportunity that I think is massive and that gets me really excited. And then I you know, double, triple, quadruple down and focus on a particular business for a long period of time. So 
I'm pretty good at going zero from one or having an idea, coming up with ideas I'm pretty good at, and then taking advantage of those ideas and, and trying to make money around them. And so with Lyft, it was just an idea of possibly connecting independent truck drivers with individuals at first. Lyft, it was a bit. So maybe to set us a little bit of context, you you give us a brief description of the different companies you've done, and I think particularly focusing on Lyftit and Cool, which are the latest ones and the ones that you've done in Colombia that I think are addressing some very big problems that we still have in the country. Yeah. So as an entrepreneur, I've never done a startup that I've had a previous experience in. Every startup has been industry and market that I've never had even one moment of experience in. And I think as an entrepreneur, I love to find opportunities, but opportunities that are new to me so I can uh, attack the endeavor with with fresh eyes, so to say, but also take the opportunity to learn from scratch. Part of the thing that I love about uh, being an entrepreneur is taking an idea, going zero to one, fundraising, building the team, but also learning a completely different market that I have never had experience in. And so in between my startups, I'm pretty good at coming up with ideas and testing ideas quickly. So with Lifted, I actually had three different ideas that I had tested from San Francisco uh, just to test the market if any of the ideas were any good. Um, I had just had my second baby at the time. I had an idea for a baby subscription box with clothes. I also had a, a baby Lego subscription. I had two baby ideas. Uh, and then like one other idea I can't remember, and then Lyft it. And with Lyft it, I was using a truck delivery app quite frequently in San Francisco. I had just visited Bogota to try to get connected to the entrepreneur ecosystem while I was still in San Francisco in 2016. And so I thought there could be a way to take, to not necessarily copy paste, but to replicate some of the truck delivery application that I was using in San Francisco and apply it into Bogota because when I had visited, I saw a bunch of truck, independent truck drivers looking for work. And so with these all completely different ideas, I tested them all just through a Facebook page and created the Facebook page, populated it with some content. Then I ran an ad for each different idea for $5 a day and tested to see if I could get any customers. And I think one of the baby ideas, I had like one or two signups, but with Lift It right away, we had three, three people request trucks. And I was in San Francisco, and my business partner, Felipe Betancourt, was in Bogota, and we were getting requests, and he was running out on the street, grabbing random guys with trucks, jumping in the truck with them, and then going to Home Center or Exito or wherever the person was that needed the truck. Because in the very beginning of Lift It, the to test the idea, because the idea for Lift It was always a grand vision of transforming the truck delivery space in Latin America. But uh, to test that simply, we just tested it to see if any individual would order a truck. And sure enough, three individuals ordered a truck that day. And then the next day, more people came and more people came the next day after that. And so um, similarly with Kubo, the idea, the vision for Kubo is to transform city space throughout Latin America. Uh, we saw an incredible opportunity with the pandemic that left uh, un a lot of abandoned and available retail space in the city. 
So with the idea of, hey, what can we do with this abandoned space? Can we repurpose it and create new industries? So with that idea, we tested at first, Kubo was to uh, do self-storage services. Again, the vision was much broader or grander, but in order to make money on day one, like how do you simplify that? So we thought, hey, what if someone would actually request Kubo to come and to pack up all their stuff and put it in self-storage space in the beginning in Bogota. And so um, about around Christmas time last year, again, I ran a Facebook page. I, I posted an ad, $5 a day. I tested some other ideas as well. And the urban space around self-storage, we, we started to get customers. We had 14 customers in two weeks. And we actually went to random apartments and we picked and packed and we coordinated with truck guys to then put the stuff into the truck, put it into a local self-storage facility, and we started to make money. And so, so I think like my, the unique thing about me is I, can, I come up with ideas pretty quickly and I can test ideas really quickly to see if we can get customers, if they'll pay us, you know, then digging into the business and the market a little bit more because, again, I've never, in my experience, I've never had any experience with the businesses that I've done. And then if everything feels right, you know, then I start to try to put the puzzle pieces together, start to fundraise, start to find the initial leadership team and build the business. And what's interesting with Kubo is after about not even a month of doing self-storage services, we realized, um, you know, as I was starting to formally fundraise for this idea about a year ago, I realized I didn't, I think the self-storage space is really interesting but I didn't have conviction on the space itself in Latin America. And I didn't really have uh, a lot of conviction personally to, hey, is this going to be the next business that I'm going to focus on for the next 10, 10 years? Self-storage is, is interesting, but I wasn't like in love with it, so to say. So I actually, through that experience of being on the streets in Bogota and making money and innovating in a particular space, I realized I felt much more comfortable to keep the same vision of transforming city space, but instead of doing it B2C with self-storage, to partner with e-commerce businesses to store their uh, e-commerce goods or products to then help them to do the e-commerce fulfillment with their direct-to-consumer shipping. And so, um, you know, that's a little bit of background on me as an entrepreneur and how I come up with these businesses. So those are great, great ideas. But in general, they both try to address a big problem in Latin America, which is supply chain and putting together marketplace between companies or small businesses that have to ship something and perhaps don't have the scale to have a recurring contract and users. Is that correct? Are they both really addressing kind of that same issue? And maybe if you can tell us, if so, why you think that's such a big problem in Latin America? Yeah, sure. So they're both in supply chain. So for the first time in my career, I've done back-to-back businesses that are in like the same industry. So with Liftit, we started B2C with random people needed truck deliveries randomly, but we did that to get to market, to make money, to then to build a company, a B2B company, which Liftit is today, that does truck deliveries. And we wanted to focus on last mile truck deliveries because it's a much more complicated technology problem to solve um, because basically the trucks have like 30 deliveries a day and you have to go to different addresses every day and you need to optimize routes and keep the trucks efficient and focus on being an efficient last mile delivery carrier focused on trucks. 
So, you know, supply chain, but the very end of the supply chain, because this is when the product is in the truck and being delivered to the end customer. So contracts for Lifted is, Lifted has a contract with a shipper and a local business who then needs truck deliveries. And every day, uh, Lifted's trucks go to the store. They pack the trucks full with product, and then the trucks are doing deliveries all day long, every single day. The unique thing about Lifted is it's a marketplace. And so on one side, they partner with shippers. And on the other side, they have to also truck drivers, independent truck drivers. And so the unique thing, you know, so the, the easiest analogy there could just be Uber for trucks. However, Lyft is very much not that because it, it's a B2B company with long-term contracts and the same trucks are showing up. Most of the time, they try to optimize on having the same trucks show up to the same shippers. But an easy analogy is using the Uber for trucks analogy. So we could have a whole podcast on the uniqueness and the value prop there. But I think like what I will address is kind of the supply chain opportunity in Latin America in a bit, but that's a little bit more Lyft's focus. And so with Kubo, again, we tested it doing B2C self-storage services, but now have iterated to be e-commerce fulfillment. And so again, in supply chain, but actually taking a step behind the truck delivery or the motorcycle delivery. And now I'm actually focused on the warehousing component and taking an inventory, putting it away. And our customers are B2B customers. So I'm working with e-commerce brands and all of the brands that we're working with are shipping through Amazon and Mercado Libre and other marketplaces. But they also, every brand has about 20% of their product that they're shipping from their .com, their direct-to-consumer business. That's where we focus. Kubo focuses on partnering with businesses, managing the sales that they will have off of their .com and that need to go directly to consumer, not through a marketplace, but just right off the website and at the door of the house. And so, and we, we manage that through the network of warehouses that we have in the city. So there's a real estate component. So we find abandoned spaces, we repurpose the space in the city, and we transform it into an urban warehouse, which we then pick and pack and manage the product of e-commerce businesses. And then once the orders come in and it needs to get delivered, then we'll partner with the delivery companies. Um, because Kubo focuses on smaller items, we don't do anything larger than a shoebox. And so, you know, and Lyft is truck deliveries and focuses on larger items. So with Kubo, we partner with 99 Minutos, uh, Ivoy, Mitsuharis Urbanos, those types of motorcycle deliveries that can come to the warehouse, pick up our orders from our customers, and then make the last mile delivery. Great. Super interesting. While we're on that topic of the last mile, I think what we're seeing is it's actually very hard to do the last mile efficiently and in a way that actually generates profits. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you see it, how you approach, where you see the opportunity is there. Yeah. So definitely the profits, and this is not just Latin America, it's, it's in general across the globe. Profits for last mile delivery are probably some of the smallest margins. But, and so in that regard, it's like not necessarily super profitable to other parts of the supply chain or just like a software software as a service business um, by itself. So yes, like margins are thinner. However, there's an incredible amount of opportunity to, be, to become more efficient and find economies of scale for delivery companies. And so 
That could be utilizing cross stuff. If a transportation company, now transportation companies are finding small cross-stocking, not warehousing, but space where they can be more like not necessarily have to go outside the city to traditional warehouses, but instead find a space inside the city to be able to cross-stock and be more efficient with delivery in the heart of the city. Or being able to have multiple cities and countries is always a benefit for a supply chain startup because then you can scale with the customer um, that you have in Colombia and you can scale with them into Mexico and into Brazil, and you can drive um, a lot of interesting economies of scale there with a business partner across Latin America. And I think the misconception there is because margins are low that it's an unprofitable business, but it is, um, you know, what in my experience, it, it can be a profitable endeavor. Great. So, um, yeah, I agree. And I think it's a huge problem to solve. And I think there's going to be some successful companies doing that. I want to talk to you a little bit about because as or a non-entrepreneur as I am, the process of finding product market fit is something we read about, but it's hard to describe. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that and when you when that happened at both Lifted That Cool and what exactly does that mean going forward? Yeah. So I have a different opinion on product market fit as it relates to supply chain startups in Latin America. And I've had this conversation quite a bit in both Kubo and Liftit, but basically I believe that it's uh, service market fit first and then product market fit eventually. Because with doing warehousing for e-commerce or uh, because we're operating the warehouse, we're actually picking and packing as the orders are coming in. And then we're outsourcing the delivery, which is service-based, but also overseeing that. Everything's with technology, so we're driving efficiencies. But the important part is to operate efficiently and prove to the customer that you're a good operator. And in that regard, you're basically competing against traditional companies. So with Lyftit, with truck deliveries, it was basically competing service level-wise with Servian Trega or Coordinadora. With Kubo, uh, we're competing with other 3PLs like Loggy's Fashion, and we want to prove that you can do a good service. And then, then you want to introduce your technology and for the customer to adopt the technology and then scale with the technology over time. And so, uh, and you have a lot of room for error there. Um, plus, the bar is pretty low in Latin America. So if you can come in our case with Kubo, if we come with a good order management system and warehouse management system that makes the direct-to-consumer shipping easy, and it can be a very simple MVP, just connecting with the Shopify, consolidating orders or a VTEX and consolidating orders, and then allowing the customer to visually see what's happening in the warehouse as things are being picked and packed. And okay, I don't have five pairs of shorts, but now I have two pairs of shorts because a few orders came in. I'm um, just having like that simple technology and have it work well and have it look pretty nice as well is already like you're already winning because in Latin America, there's not a lot of traditional players that have good technology. Then from there, you can iterate fast and build out a sophisticated platform. And you have a lot of time to iterate and work with the customer to basically make product market fit happen, working side by side with your customer, because you first prove the service market fit, that you're a good service operator. However, trying to address your question, because I do have three other startups where I had to absolutely find product market fit because I wasn't doing any services. 
my first one, we never found, it was a social app for sports fans and we never found product market fit. Basically, there's at most maybe 10,000 users who downloaded the app would use it, would maybe use it once or twice and then they left the product because they didn't find it was anything valuable or anything interesting. And so we always had like this cohorts always bled to zero basically with that. And um, there was a lot of other reasons why the startup failed that first one, but um, that was a main reason why, because it was a social app, no, really no significant business model. So we depended on users coming back, re retention and growing the user base, which we were never able to achieve. So ultimately we had to shut that business down. And then my second and third businesses were enterprise software companies. And basically the third business was selling to developers and the second business was selling to enterprise companies, IT departments, so you can consider them developers as well. And that was just straight software as a service, and you had to find product market fit. And so the tip that I have there that works really well is if you can find like a, a tiny cohort, like 10 customers or 10 users that would come back, that are coming, like you're retaining them, they're showing up once a day, once a week, that is the start of what product market fit can eventually be uh, with a SaaS or, or a social application. So for me, it's like, how can you start small and isolate a particular cohort, find the needle in the haystack, and then iterate from there? And I think that's incredibly hard to do as an entrepreneur because you're, you're trying to move as fast as you can. You've dove into the deep end of the pool. You're trying to do a ton of different things. And so I find a lot of entrepreneurs have a tough time to just take a deep breath and just isolate it down to like even like a handful of, of users that are showing up every day and you've retained them. With that, if you can spend the time to talk to them, understand why you're using the product, making sure that they go from you know using your product a lot to absolutely loving the product, then from there you can actually grow and find additional product market fit. And so I think like it depends on the product that you're building. In my experience, it can be a very different experience to achieve product market fit. Thank you. Super insightful. What did you do on the first one? So when you realized you didn't have, you, you, you shut down. I mean, how does that conversation happen with the people you're working with? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot, as I mentioned, there's a lot of things that went wrong with that business. One I was young at the time. It was my first startup. I, I had no idea what I was doing. I was in denial uh, a lot of the time. I tried to get involved with too many of the air. I tried to get involved with product decisions and marketing decisions. And I'm not really good at all with those two departments. And so I've learned to delegate better. But as it relates to product market fit for that particular business, the, the business is called Enthuse. And with Enthuse, um, basically, my idea of how to hope to find it was just throw away the product um, that wasn't working and just start all over again, like completely like different code, different UI, UX, completely different product, which was just the worst decision ever. Because like even the first product we, lo we launched with Enthuse was good and we had some good metrics. And what the easiest thing to do is just make small and quick iterations off of that initial product to enhance it um, and, and to get better. But what we did was to try to solve the product market fit was just throw away everything and start all over again, trying to, you know, hit the lightning in the bottle, which, which never came. I see you're also, you've, you're also an investor. And I was wondering in this atmosphere, 
where there's so much liquidity in the market and basically you know, I see investors begging startups to let them in. How do you select good investments or what do you look for entrepreneurs and new business ideas? Yeah. So very much like being an entrepreneur, when I started off being an investor, I wasn't that good. I was probably better than most new investors because I could pull from experience because um, I started my fund called Bassin Ventures in 2014, uh, which I still uh, manage today. I'm on fund two. And um, basically, it was luck. Um, it was a bunch of guys who uh, were alumni at the same college that I went to in Vermont. And every time I'd come back to Massachusetts, we would we would meet up for alumni events and we became good friends. And they're actually the initial limited partners of Bass and Ventures are much older than I am, actually. And every time I come to Massachusetts, I connect with them. Like I'm here this week and I have a few meetings with a few of those limited partners. And these are guys that are in their 60s, 70s, but we all went to the same college. We all played soccer. like, And so we kind of bonded in that way. And so in 2014, I already done enthused, and I forget if I was on my second or third business, but I was in the game. I was an entrepreneur like with some experience at that time. And then through conversations with the alumni at the school, I convinced like just a small group. It was like eight at the time to you know pool some money together and allow me because they were interested uh, because they're older and at the time I forget how old it was I, I was definitely young but they were you know uh, middle aged and look had some extra money that they wanted to invest and so they basically like had trust in me to pool a little bit of money together and I was at the time in San Francisco and I could start making early stage investments and this was 2014 and so you know at the time I didn't have like a huge network I had some entrepreneurs that I knew and that I liked. And so it was, it was a little bit random at the time. And so, and I also got really lucky with that fund. I ended up returning the fund really quickly. I also, as soon as I started to make investments, other people started to talk about um, all, like my friends outside of San Francisco started to see what I was up to and that they wanted to, so it started with a small group from the university, but then expanded to a much broader network of my friends. And so the fund ended up being kind of quite substantial. And I was all of a sudden, I was an investor. However, at the end of the day, I'm always focused. I'm an operator. I'm focused on my business. I try to have always done a good job at this of, of making sure that I'm only spending time thinking about investing on the weekends or any like at night. So I don't have it interfere with my day job. And so to get back to your question. So in the beginning, I was not that good. It was kind of just random opportunistic investments that I would find. Today, I'm very deliberate and specific on how I invest. And I try to do it industries which I have a ton of experience on or currently innovating in. So right now, like my last five investments have been all supply chain investments or, or direct to consumer businesses. So I just did two direct to consumer businesses in Bogota. I did a supply chain investment in Brazil and Mexico, and I'm only focused on Latin America because I'm in Latin America, I'm in supply chain, I'm working with the e-commerce businesses. So I try to keep it very close to the experience that I have because again, like I'm focused on my business. I'm not like a full-time investor. So I don't want to randomly kind of just make random investments in the markets that I have no experience. And I try to keep it tight into the network that I have in Latin America. And so for me, I'm, it's interesting because as an 
entrepreneur and operator, you connect with the founders at a much deeper level and in a different level. And actually, as the operator myself, I always love trying to find other investors who are operators. And so if you look at Kubo, Kubo has like close to 90 investors today, and most of them are operators. Most of them are the best operators in Latin America. And while they're not writing, you know, we just closed a seed round. It was nice. We had a fund who's an awesome fund and they're writing big checks. The operators that you bring in as angel investors, they're only putting in like $10,000, sometimes up to $50,000 in rare cases beyond 50. But, you know, it's usually kind of a small check. But I love taking those operator checks because those are the investors that know what you're going through because they have gone through it themselves or are going through it themselves. And they just have a different perspective on the business, how they can help the business and how you can maneuver through all of the ups and downs and the challenges that you have. Every month, there's a huge challenge that I face even today with Kubo. And the first people I reach out to are, yes, my lead investor and board. But then like at the same time and after I reach out to like 10 of the operators that are close to me and I pick the brain of like, how would you manage this particular situation to look for advice and just for some support. And so, you know, as an investor operator, I find that I get some unique access to deals, but I also, I never, never have a hard time getting into deals as well, because you have that certain advantage of other investors have that other entrepreneurs have that same perspective of trying to find experienced operators to bring into their cap table as an investor. Great. Very insightful. So one last question before we finish off the interview, what has surprised you about Columbia, <laughs> I guess, you know, coming back? and about being a CEO and being a founder in Colombia, what has surprised you and what has been the most difficult that perhaps you didn't expect? Well, the most difficult definitely was ICE has been isolated to around the time when I originally got to Bogota in 2017. That was extremely difficult because nobody wanted to invest into the region. There was 99% of the conversations I had in 2017, the potential investor didn't want anything to do. Like they just wanted to like hear about the pitch, but it was a quick no. Latin America is not on the radar, especially if, if the investor is outside of Latin America. If they were in Latin America, they were more into real estate investing or like investing into land or hotels. And so that was challenging. So the funnel to get investors then I had to make sure I was meeting with like six to eight people every single day pitching and most of them are going to be no's. And today it's quite the opposite, actually. So basically 100% of the conversations I've had for Kubo fundraising, everybody has interest to invest into the region everywhere across the globe. Everyone has Latin America on their radar. And then it just becomes a challenge of like, okay, then now you have to present the business and do it well and tell a compelling story. So not everyone's going to say yes, but like the interest level is through the roof. And so you don't see those same challenges. So that kind of answers like the other question of like what has surprised me is, um, you know, my, my, my time in Latin America hasn't been that long. It's been like five years, basically. I arrived in Bogota in 2017 on January 7th. So it hasn't even been five years, but the shift has just been like monumental. I literally, I like the shift, like probably like once I got there, I could start, I could see, I could feel the shift happening. And now it's just it's through the roof. And so what was a challenge is now not a challenge. And um, what's super surprising is how everyone has the region on their radar, 
how there's really talented entrepreneurs coming out of everywhere across the region in Colombia. Colombia has a ton of awesome startups. Um, that ecosystem is going to be, um, the next three years are going to be phenomenal to be an entrepreneur in Colombia specifically. And so that's what surprised me. I definitely didn't expect this to happen so fast. And, uh, but it's also like, it's, you know, I feel very lucky to have gotten into the region at the exact time when the region was just taking off. Excellent. Great to hear. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time. Great talking to you. Congratulations on all this success and we hope for great success for both Lifted and Cool. And thank you. We're lucky that uh, you came back to Colombia and are investing your time and expertise. Um, I, I agree with you. It's a very exciting time to be in Colombia and watching it from the sidelines. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And I think this is going to bring a new era of growth to the region and of um, opportunity to the region and particularly in Colombia. So thank you very much. Great talking to you. Likewise. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Los tres puntos para resaltar de la conversación de hoy es uno, lo que ha avanzado el ecosistema emprendedor en Latinoamérica y Brian pues ha sido testigo y lo que ha logrado nos da evidencia de eso. Realmente eh, importante escuchar de primera mano el avance. Dos, que enfocarse solo en producto puede ser peligroso. Muy importante la parte de servicio y asegurar que los clientes sienten que se está cerca de ellos y que se están reteniendo. Y tres, que hay algunas oportunidades que no parecen atractivas, pero que pueden ser muy disruptivas y generar unos retornos interesantes. Ha sido el caso de Liftit y de Cubo.